Good morning. I see everyone ventured out on this nasty weather, cold morning, right? If you don't know me very well, that's a lot of sarcasm that's mixed in there. Because even as a boy from the south, I know these roads are not bad. Uh, and so that's a, it's a good thing. Glad we were, did not have anything iced over. It was funny how it was Thursday, 70 degrees, and then yesterday, snowing. And then I think Tuesday of this week, it's supposed to be 70 degrees yet again. <laughs> if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. We're going to be continuing in our journey through Mark's Gospel, concluding on Easter Sunday, uh, rightfully with the resurrection uh, of Christ. But as you're uh, turning in, the, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, I want to take a moment, uh, do something I don't normally do, um, we'll just sort of take a moment for a personal prayer request uh, on, on our, our life as a family, uh, where um, we could be praying for Leslie Bryant and myself as we are beginning the steps of moving towards adopting baby number two. And um, uh, thank it's um, I didn't, I, try, I didn't do this in the first one. I'm going to try not to become a blubbering fool um, up here. And so I'm going to make sure that's not the case. We've long wanted to add um, another child. Uh, it was never in our plans and our plans to, to have just one child. Um, but life circumstances, as we've openly shared with infertility and various things in our life, um, circumstances and transitions and everything that we could go into, um, it just continued to be that spot of, okay, is this going to happen? And uh, recently, the Lord has just been pressing upon us, uh, you know, we, we can do this and we need to do this. And really, three, three different things pressing upon us here. One, um, there's a dramatic need. Um, within our region specifically, there is a growing number of babies who are being born uh, from drug-addicted mothers. And there is a growing need right here in our area. And we can help with that need. So we are going to begin the process of fostering to adopt an infant who has uh, most likely been born to a drug-addicted mother. And uh, so we, there's a lot of questions, a lot of insecurities. A lot of our questions continue to be answered. Um, and um, so one, there's a dramatic need there. Um, two, um, we realize even through being convicted through the preparation of sermons and Leslie listening to sermons and just being convicted through the process of reading God's Word of we can and need to do this is, is for us an answer to as a tangible means of loving our neighbor as ourself. And we can do this. And so it's a means of we, we feel like we, the Lord is leading us to do this. And uh, this has been a spot where we can do this in large part because we have you as a church family. One of the big questions that has risen over uh, as we've gone through this, whether talking with family or friends or um, the social worker, is do you have a network of support? And we've been able to say we have a network of support like we've never had before. And so I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart of how much we love you um, and need you um, in this process. Um, you are very much raising Bryant with us. And we're going to ask you to do the same in this journey. Um, also, we, we look and we see, and I'm sharing this with permission, is Andy and Marcy Deck have, are also beginning the process of fostering to adopt an infant as well. 
um, same program that, that we're going through. And in fact, the Lord has been using them greatly in our life um, as a means of encouragement, sometimes a kick in the pants, um, just that reminder of the Lord is kind of using them to nudge us along um, in this, along with other families within this body of believers, whether you realize it or not. Which is, again, the reminder, I'm not just here, I'm not the one here just to do the teaching, I'm here to learn. And I'm learning and we're learning from each and every one of you on a week-in and week-out basis. And it's part of being the family of Christ together. Um, so we can't, we can do this because, there, one, there is, a, there is a need. Two, we, we, can, we can do this. And three, the Lord has placed upon us a desire to do this. We would like to have another child in our, in our life. And this seems to be the, the clear means that the Lord is leading for us to do. So we're going to begin just to take those steps forward. Um, as long as those doors continue to open, our yes is on the table um, to what the Lord would have that to, to look like. And I want to ask you to be praying for us, but I also want to be specifically praying for these children. Um, and we're praying for not only the infants, um, but children of all ages who are looking for forever families. I want to be praying for the, these mothers and fathers as well who are facing, finding themselves in such um, you know, dire straits and conditions where whatever road has led them to that point, this is a spot where life has taken them on a turn that they didn't expect. And we want to be praying for them to, to hear and respond to the good news of the gospel and that their lives will be transformed. We also want to be just praying as a church family. Some of you have expressed kind of thoughts and questions about this, and if it's something that you do have questions about, I've already talked with uh, the Bethany Christian Services, who is our agency, and they're willing to do a, an informational meeting at any time if we have individuals who are wanting to know more information, whatever that looks like. No commitment involved. If you're just interested in what that might look like for your family, we're willing to put that together and host that um, at some time. Um, but adoption may not be the area for you. Maybe something else entirely in your life, but be praying for, for us of what is that tangible yes on the table, blank check, what is the Lord having us to do as a church to love our neighbor uh, as ourself. And so what I want us to do is now is to pray, and then we're going to most uh, intently dive into the Word of God together this morning. So let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of life. The fact that you created us, made us in your image, in your likeness. That you know every hair on our head and every detail about our life. That you know us better than we know ourselves. That you love us more than we love ourselves. It breaks my heart to know that there even has to be a need for things like adoption in this world. But then we're reminded of the fallen world of which we live. And we're reminded that if, if it weren't for you redeeming and adopting us, we too would be spiritual orphans. So Lord, we, we pray for these children. We pray that they will be given a chance in life, that they will receive forever families. And forever families that will raise them up in the fear and the admonition of you, O oh Lord. We pray for the birth moms and the birth fathers. Can't imagine the desperation and the circumstances in their lives. But we are thankful that they have chosen life. And we, we ask for you to create opportunities for them, again, to hear and respond to the truths of the gospel. Transform their lives. 
And for we as a church family, whether it's adoption or obedience to call, your call to make disciples of all nations, whatever that looks like, Lord, shape us, guide us, convict us, and show us what a yes on the table looks like. Use your word to shape the direction of our lives and do it all for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Let's pick up together in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Obviously, it's an opportunity to betray Jesus. Judas looking to betray Jesus. And what we have before us here in these 11 verses is an obvious compare and contrast situation. You have an act of sacrificial love and devotion that is coming from this woman being compared and contrasted with the acts of betrayal that were coming from the religious leaders and, and Judas. The religious leaders are looking for a means to arrest Jesus, to destroy Jesus, but they want to do so kind of under the cover of darkness where they're not going to create an uproar amidst all the people in the midst of Passover week. And this is where Judas comes into the scene and says, hey, I think I can help you with that. Now, what I find very interesting about these first 11 verses here is how verses 3 through 9 are injected, inserted where they are because they do not fall in the chronological order of what we're looking at. What we have in verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 through 11 are are happening two days before Passover. Verses 3 through 9 and the woman's actions are happening according to the Gospel of John six days before Passover. Now the question then comes into mind, why would Mark insert them here six days out of place and why would he do this? Well, the reason being is he wants to make a point. He's making a very specific point here. The point being to give a visible example of what real faith is and what real faith isn't. So what we have, again, is a marking sandwich. You have two acts of betrayal kind of unifying together, and then you've got this act of of faithful devotion sandwiched in the middle. And what this is, is is a compare and contrast. So what we have before us today is really a a two-point message as trying to be a good 
pastor that I am where I try to be, I was trying to make it a three-point message because it's like every message has to be a three-point message, right? Well, it doesn't seem to fall that way. And this is a, a two-point message starting with number one, Christian hearts aren't devoted to self like Judas. Now, I worked on that one uh, uh, quite often, and heads are kind of, huh, uh, you know, in the process, because I was thinking through this all week, and it seems quite obvious Christian hearts aren't devoted to self like Judas. It's like, well, duh, you know, who wants to be like Judas? We aren't to be like Judas. It's kind of like the mic drop point. It's like, church, do not be like Judas. Have a great day. God bless you as we go from here. Well, that's obviously not a very good biblical Christ-centered sermon. Um, That's not what we have as the focus here. But it is the aim. It is very important. Don't be like Judas. We don't want that to be the aim of our life. But I'm betting, well, again, we're in church. I'm assuming here that if, if even on our very worst days, and you can think about your very worst days, I'm betting none of you, (laughs) uh, just forgive me, we have a casino in town, I'm betting on our very worst days that when you go home, you're not saying, man, I am so much like Judas, right? None of us are like, I am so much like Judas in our life. You know, your spouse may say that, but you're not saying that about yourself. None of us want to be like Judas, not even our, like our worst days, we're not saying those things. We'll admit that we've done bad things, that we're not perfect people. But man, like I am at least not that guy. And we've talked about that guy before. Well, Judas is that guy. Like as bad as I've been, at least I'm not as bad as Judas, right? I've never betrayed Jesus like Judas did. I mean, there's a reason nobody names their baby Judas, right? No one wants to be associated with him. But in reading this text and studying God's Word, I think at the core of who we are, if we're really being honest and faithful to the Scripture, we're probably more like Judas than we would care to admit or, or want to think. You think about Judas and we think naturally of his betrayal. We think of how he betrayed Jesus. Same thing, we watch the news and we see a murder, a mass murder. We see somebody committing adultery or some egregious type of sin. And our natural response clicking into our head is, I'm not that bad. I may do some bad things in my life, but I've never done that. (laughs) I'm not as bad as that guy. But that's where we want to go beyond the actions and we want to delve into the heart of the matter. Let's penetrate to the heart of the matter. And we want to see, in this case, let's penetrate into and see what's revealed about Judas and his heart. And that's what we see in verses 3 through 9 here. Where the woman comes to Jesus with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, breaks the flask and pours it over Jesus' head. And then Mark tells us that there were some, some likely being several of the disciples who became indignant over her wasting the ointment. They're angry. They're upset. Why would you do this? They're saying, you could have, this could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. It could have been sold for lots of money and we could have given it to the poor. What are you doing? John chapter 12 tells us, identifies the primary voice of this indignation being that of Judas. Again, he's likely not alone in this, but he is the primary voice of this hostility that is being directed towards this woman receiving the rebuke. But then here in, we look and we say, what's the heart behind the matter? 
What's the motivating factor behind Judas' words? Well, verse 6 tells us in John chapter 12. He said this, Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas is in charge of all the money. He's the treasurer in the bunch. People give money so it can go to the poor. What does Judas do? Thank you very much. I'm going to take some for myself. He's lining his own pockets with it. Judas likes his job. He likes all the possibilities in his mind that this job brings. He's thinking in terms of Jesus being a military conquering type of Messiah that maybe I can have a cabinet position where I'm the chief of finance. I'm the finance treasurer. I'm going to be able to be over all of this in in the new kingdom. He likes that idea. But what Judas didn't care about were the poor. Who Judas did not care about was Jesus. He liked or even loved the thought of what Jesus had to offer, but he didn't really love Jesus. He wasn't devoted to Jesus. When we ask the question, who then, who was he devoted to? Who was it? He was devoted to self. He was devoted to himself. Meaning, meaning Judas' problem is first and foremost what? It's a heart issue. The same can be true of every single one of us in this room. At the core of who we are, our problem fundamentally is a heart issue. Because whether we're aware of it or not, we can all find ourselves responding to Jesus like Judas on any course of any given day. How? Well, think about the words we've seen from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says in in verse 27, You have heard what it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Everybody clicked right then. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. And in the minds of everybody listening on the mount, the mind of the rich young ruler that we look back in several chapters prior, the mind of most of us in this room would say, okay, I'm not guilty there. (laughs) Haven't done that one. Check. Not as bad as that guy. But then Jesus says, hold up. Yes, you have. And people are like, what? What are you talking about here? How, How am I guilty of that? Well, then he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Look at a woman, look at a man. Same thing can be applied to any number of other sins. People will say, I've never committed a murder. And Jesus is saying, um, hold up. Yes, you have. You know that, that anger that's festering and growing right there in your life? And we're not talking about righteous anger, but sinful anger that is in your heart? Yeah, you have, you are guilty here. But, 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 but I've never betrayed Jesus like Judas did. <laughs> I'm not that bad. And Jesus is like, okay, think about that. Have you ever, have you ever disobeyed my word? Yeah. You're just as guilty as Judas. We've broken the law of God. We're the ones, we need to understand, we're the ones who deserve to hang on a tree condemned. Not Jesus. We're the ones who deserve to hang on the tree condemned. Not Jesus. Why? Because Scripture tells us clearly that the punishment for sin is death and that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. Does it matter if it's this short? Or, or this short? 
We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, whether it's sinful thoughts or egregious sinful actions. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and deserve to be punished and judged rightly for our sin. The difference for Christians, by the grace of God, the difference for Christians is, by the grace of God, we know this and have repented of our sins and believe Jesus to be our only hope in life and in death. We recognize that we are are without hope. We recognize that we are sinfully depraved. We recognize that we deserve God's judgment. And we recognize by God's grace that Jesus Christ is our only hope in life and in death. And in that act of redemption, God changes our hearts. There's a reason the Bible uses languages like new birth, born again, new creation. The old is gone, the new is come. God changes our hearts when we come to Christ. And it's a progress of growing us more and more like Christ throughout our life. It's evidence of of fruit in our life. We don't do this on our own. We don't just like strap on our boots and we're going to make something of ourselves and I'm going to get my life right. God does this. New hearts evidenced by new life. And what Mark is doing here in in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, is he says, let me show you what this is, and let me show you what this isn't. This is not Judas and the religious leaders. It doesn't look like that. People who, who think that they're my followers, who look to be my followers, may follow for many years, but are not transformed from within. Sadly, this hits painfully close to home probably for most of us in this room, either by friends or by family, people who have at one time looked to be following the Lord, looked to, to, lo- to love the Lord, and, but now are giving no visible evidence uh, that they actually love the Lord. It's a painful reality that hits very close to home. They look much more like Judas than they do, they, than they do the woman. That's what we look and the compare and the contrast What this is, what faithful obedience is, is the woman anointing Jesus with oil. And that's what brings us to point number two. Christians have hearts marked by sacrificial devotion to Jesus. Christians have hearts marked by sacrificial devotion to Jesus. This doesn't mean that we do everything perfect. This doesn't mean we have all the answers. It doesn't mean we have everything figured out. It doesn't mean we won't mess up in our life. But it does say Christians have hearts marked by sacrificial devotion to Jesus is what we see as an example throughout the text. Here, this woman, who John identifies as Mary, unnamed Mary, comes to Jesus with a very costly ointment. And it's an ointment worth almost a year's salary to the average worker in that day. You're talking an ointment worth twenty-five dollars to $30,000. Now, guys, I don't care how good you did on Valentine's Day. You didn't do that good, all right? That's an expensive gift. It's likely a family heirloom that has been now passed down from generation to generation, or maybe one generation. We don't know specifically, but no doubt it's holding monetary value and sentimental value to this woman. And what does she do with it? Does she just go and she just sprinkle a couple drops on Jesus? No. She doesn't go just a drop here, a drop there. What does she do? She breaks the alabaster flask and pours all of it on her. Every last bit she pours it all on Jesus. 
Every last bit of it. Gone. (laughs) Now we've already seen the disciples' response. The disciples' response was one of indignation. What are you doing? Why would you do that? You could have given it to the poor. But then what? What's Jesus' response? He comes to defend her. He comes and defends as we see three different means of his defense. First, Jesus defends her motives. We see this in verses 6 through 7. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Now, the accusation that's coming from Judas is that she's neglecting the poor. How can you do this, Mary? I mean, all of that 300 in there, it could have been used, it could have been given to the poor. Mary is in no way neglecting or being uncaring to the poor here. And neither is Jesus' response. His words aren't in any way intended to be insensitive to the poor and the needy. Jesus' whole ministry gives evidence to the contrary. So then what are we to make of Jesus' response here? How do we understand the words that he's saying here? We need to understand them here as he's acknowledging her action as an act of sacrificial love and devotion to him. What we have before us is a matter of always versus not always. Look at verse 7. The poor will always be present to care for. Jesus will, on the other hand, not always be present. What this is, is a matter of loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength coming before loving our neighbor as ourself. So now you think about that. If I were to say that, or you were to say that, you will always have the poor, but you will not always have me. You're going to be like, that guy is arrogant. (laughs) Like, what in the world? Why? You will not always have the poor, but you will, you will not always, you always have the poor, but you will not always have me. It's Jeremy thinking. Like he's got a hold of the wrong stuff. Like what in the world is he saying here? And, and then, but why? Jesus says these words. Why can Jesus say these words and I can't say these words? Because Jesus is the Son of God and none of us are. And this is where I think we need to make a very clear point a point that is clear, we need to make it even more clear. Because we'll say Jesus is the Son of God. And that kind of goes through the language as kind of like Jesus is secondary to God in some way. We need to understand Jesus is God. He is fully God. Has eternally existed as God in the perfect relationship that is known as the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is not second. He is not partially. He is fully God. So when we see the call to to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Jesus here would affirm we are to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and the greatest commandment. It's a mark of a Christian heart to love Christ, to love God. And that, that love, is a motivating factor behind everything else we do, including loving our neighbor as ourself. We cannot rightly love our neighbor as ourself if we do not love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first feeds into the second. And the reason Jesus says she has done a beautiful thing to me 
is because her action is an act of love. It's an act of love. He knows the heart behind her, her action. Just like he knows the heart behind Judas's action. He knows the heart. He knows the motivating factor. But unlike Judas, her act isn't selfish in any way. It's pure. It's innocent. It's undefiled. See, it's not the cost of the gift that matters here. It's the heart and the motivation behind the gift. And if you've been around children, or at any point in time you have children, you know what I'm talking about here. Like Bryant, at his school, his preschool, at Christmas time, they'll have a store that they put together. And they'll have like all these little dollar store uh, like items for the kids to come in and to buy Christmas presents for mommy and daddy and friends and family. And so he, he's able to go in and pick gifts for us. Well, little man cannot keep a secret to save his life. So he goes in and he buys those gifts and he comes home. And do you think he waited till Christmas time? No. He's like, Mommy, Daddy, I want you to open them now. And I'm like, just wait. He's like, no, you've got to open them now. And like, he just was beaming excitement. He comes up to Leslie and he gives her the gift. And she opens it up and it's, it's a mug. It's a dollar store mug. <laughs> So it, it's not the prettiest thing in the world. <laughs> it's a mug. And Leslie looks at that mug, and what do you think happened with that mug? It became her favorite mug. Like her favorite mug. Like drinking out of that mug. And, and then a few months ago, that mug got cracked. Now, Leslie was very upset about that. And I'm thinking, it was a dollar store mug. <laughs> and she's like, but Brian gave me that mug. <laughs> And I'm saying, okay. Now, for me, what did he give me? He gave me a screwdriver with adaptable, like, wrenches and stuff on top. I, and just by my answer there, you can, I, I'm not Mr. Fix-It. <laughs> like, that's not my jam. I don't, I don't work well with fixing things around the house. I do the best that I can, and that's it eh, at times. Well, but Bryant, anytime Daddy goes to fix anything, he goes and gets his yellow hat on, his construction hat. He goes and gets his orange vest, like he's going to be picking up trash on the side of the road. He goes and gets that one. He gets his little toolbox, and he comes and says, Daddy, I'm here to help. Why did he get me that screwdriver? Because he wanted to help Daddy do work around the house. I mean, there'll be moments where I'm like, I'm in my office, I'm working on a sermon. I'm like focused in, you know, trying to really be zeroed in. And he comes busting through the door and I'm like, oh, and you know those moments, right, parents? And then I'm like, a moment of anger starts to kick in and then he says, daddy, I drew this picture for you. And I'm like, oh, and I begin to look at the picture. I'm like, well, tell me about it. And he goes, well, that's you. And I'm like, is that really what I look like? <laughs> I guess in your mind... But it's the best gifts, right? These are the best gifts because it's motivated. Behind, it's the motivation behind the gift is what matters. I'm not trying in these moments to get anything. There's other times he's trying to get plenty, but these are the moments where it's just motivated by love. And love is what what Mary's gift is motivated by, and that's the type of love. That's the type of motivation that is pleasing to God. Love that is evidenced by action. So how, the question that I have for, for, for me, for you, for all of us, is how is the Lord leading you to love in, in action? 
How is the Lord leading your love to be seen in action? One, in a love for, for God, but also in a love for neighbor. What does that look like in, in your life? Are those questions that you're asking? You know, is those questions that you're praying together as a family? What does this look like in, in our life? Number two, in his defense, we see Jesus commends her gift. We see this in the first part of verse eight. Notice here how he says, she has done what she could. We saw already her gift was beautiful because it rightly put Christ first. Caring for the poor is important. Social justice issues are important. Humanitarian works are important, but not as important as loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But Jesus commends her gift as beautiful too because she has done what she could. She had done what she could. She doesn't give out of her abundance here. She doesn't give out of her abundance. She doesn't just give a few drops. Not a drop here and a drop there. Save a little bit for later. She gives everything. She gives it all. It's the total opposite of what we see with Judas. Judas takes, she gives everything. See, to our knowledge, Mary was not a wealthy person, but like the widowed woman, giving all she had to live on, the woman that we looked at in in chapter 12, Mary gives it all. Now, Jesus never would have said she, had done, she has done what she could if she had only given a few drops, if she had only given out of a sense of obligation. Well, I'll give whatever I have left. I'll make him feel welcome. He never would have said those things if she had not given all that she could. Neither would he say that about us. Now what we see with Mary, like the widow woman in chapter 12, is an appropriate act of sacrificial devotion that is stemming from a heart that is devoted to loving the Lord her God with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. What we see from Mary is what a Christian heart is to look like in practice, in flesh and blood, being lived out. Which begs the question, what is our devotion to Christ costing us? Not not talking about earning our salvation. Can't do that. But what is our devotion to Christ costing us? Is is there any inconvenience? Is there any deprivation to be found at all in in our devotion to Christ? Or is it just another piece of the puzzle in our life and our life just kind of goes along? She gave what she did, what she could. She did what she could. Can that be said of us? Because that, that's what God wants. Not, not for us to give what we can't give, but to give all that we can give out of a heart that is motivated by love. Not out of obligation. Not out of a means to, to climb a ladder to achieve something else, but a, mo- a heart that is motivated by love. And three, we see Jesus recognizes her insight. Second part of verse 8 through the end of verse 9 Jesus says here, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now verse 9 holds true for the very fact that now some 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this woman. 
But Jesus stating she has anointed my body beforehand for burial appears to be a striking statement of insight being affirmed upon Mary by Jesus. Especially considering that the other 12 disciples have yet to have it register anything about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. On three different occasions, he has told them that he will have to suffer, that he will have to die, and then he will rise from the grave. And they're sitting there like deers in the headlight, kind of like, huh? Like, what are you talking about? We don't understand. They cannot see the forest for the trees. Now, this doesn't mean that she fully understood what was about to happen to Jesus. I mean, how could she fully understand in that moment? But she does appear to have a greater insight than the 12, again, by God's grace. Definitely greater insight, love, and devotion than we see from Judas. See, being a Christian doesn't mean we have everything figured out. We're not going to have everything figured out. It doesn't mean that we're going to live perfect lives. We won't. He who says he has no sin is a liar. Neither are we who are in sin to continue to sin so that grace may abound. By no means. We should not. But we are to faithfully love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's going to be evidence in how we love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to trust and to love and to be devoted to Christ and to Christ alone in everything that we say and do. See, how we see and understand Jesus determines everything else about us. Everything. It determines whether or not we're going to to respond and come to him like Judas or we're going to come to him like the woman. See, both of them are remembered. Some now 2,000 years later, they're both remembered. She remembered for a great devotion and what sacrifice looks like and he for what betrayal looks like. What it means to kind of look the part but not be the part. Both of them are remembered. Which will it be for you? Which will it be for us? What are we doing in our life now even that is going to matter not only 10,000 years from now but 10 trillion years from now? Because it's a very real understanding. As one poet says, there's only one life to live that will soon be passed. Only one life to live that will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. All these things that can be important in life, yes. But what's going to matter 10 trillion years from now? What's really going to matter? Is that what we're devoting our lives to? Those are the questions I want us to be thinking about and wrestling through it personally and corporately as a church as we go from here today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you use it to save and to sanctify, to convict and to encourage, to shape our hearts for how you would have us to to love and to live and and what you would have us to do. Let each of us be a people who, who truly love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us to grow in that love. Let our devotion not be to self, but to Jesus. Not to the things of this world, but to Christ. Not to the things that are going to fade away, but the things that will matter again 10 trillion years from now. Oh, Lord, have your way. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing an affirmation to these truths.